Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Adrian Jackson, and I work in our London office uh, with my colleague here, my our co-CIO, John Getz. But John was one of our co-founders of the firm in 1996. He today is our co-CIO with Rich Pazina and is a portfolio manager on our global, emerging market, European and Japanese strategies. So John, can you please explain why you think where we are now and what you think the future holds for us? Thanks, thanks Adrian. And thank you all for taking a few minutes out of your, your day to, to listen to this. Uh, we are at an extreme point. Uh, there's been other extreme points in history. But just before I dive in, Adrian, I think I'll just remind those people what we're trying to do at Pazine Investor Management to give you a context for why we view these events as so extreme and why we think the opportunity for a big turn here uh, is, is so significant. Uh, and, and what we're looking to do is to underpay for businesses. Uh, what, we're, what we're trying to do is screen the world for undervaluation. We have a naive front end, I call it naive because it's using uh, historical data. And from that data, we compare stock prices to the future earnings power and cash flow from these businesses. So, so what we're trying to do is underpay, and I like to say grossly underpay. Uh, we think of ourselves as disciplined value. I think that's turned into deep value, partly because we don't uh, track indices very tightly. You, you can call that you know, tracking error. Um, so I would say that you know, what we're trying to do is grossly underpay. And when you do that, you must be buying businesses where there is some issue or, or controversy that's driving that valuation. And it's those controversies that are super big today. Um, and, and clearly we research companies one by one. We think we're buying them when there is pain. I've, I've described businesses, you know, I've been investing in businesses all over the world for a long time. And I now describe there's only two kinds of businesses. Those that have some problem today and those that are gonna have a problem tomorrow. Uh, and, and we're buying businesses that obviously have some issue today and that creates the opportunity for underpayment. We are not biased to any value factor. We don't even think of ourselves as factor investors. We just want underpay. That has enabled us to buy businesses in the past of some comments you know, on Microsoft, which we've owned at one point in our history. We've owned even Google uh, at one point in its history when there was a big controversy. So I just wanna lay that out. We're not trying to be a value factor. We're trying to grossly underpay for businesses. We just think today the spreads are extreme. Right now, what we're looking at is a global phenomenon, not a regional phenomenon. This is just simply looking at one very simple value factor. This is just simply looking at price to book. We don't use price to book in our screening tool, so don't, don't get scared. We're not trying to say price to book is efficacious. It's just a simple value metric that can look back over, over a century and see when the dislocations have been large. We're at the four to five standard deviation level, uh, even bigger than the dislocation at dot-com back in the late 90s, 1990s and in, in the turn of 2000. Uh, what I wanted to point out uh, is that uh, different regions have had different issues at different times in history. Probably the most notable one with Japan having a big dislocation uh, in the mid-1980s. I happened to be living in Asia uh, at the time and remember this well, this was also a period of hope where there were particular stocks that people have fallen in love with. You may recall those of you that are older that at that time, we really thought Japan was the disruptor of the world 
and they were going to take over the world and was more of a, a national idea of all their businesses uh, being excellent than it was any specific industry. But that, that, that period ended, then you see dot-com as the next major uh, dislocation in the developed world. There's a big dislocation in emerging markets just before the dot-com dislocation, which was the Asia crisis. I call that a fear-based cycle, whereas uh, dot-com is kind of a hope-based cycle. But today, the valuations are extreme all over the world. And I'm going to go through four reasons why uh, we think that we could be at the end of this big dislocation. And as we titled this, the great rotation back to valuations making sense is maybe the way I would uh, describe it. So let, let's talk about the first one. Um, the first thing is that recessions are typically involved in, in the big turns in history. Um, usually what's happened is certain businesses have disappointed significantly going into a recession. Uh, but as you get into the recession, uh, people begin to look to the other side of the darkness or the earnings disruption, particularly in cyclicals, obviously. But uh, there's usually a lot of disruption in earnings power uh, going into recessions and a lot of fear. That's why I separate fear cycles from, from hope cycles. If you just naively invested in value, uh, you would have created decent alpha in the history uh, of both the United States uh, and, and Japan. The reason we've thrown Japan in is the fact that Japan, as you know, since the, their, their great bubble in the, in the mid-1980s, really they've been in a low growth, low inflation, low interest rate environment. So one, if one was just looking at the history of data and naively investing in value, you would not say that, that recessions aren't a catalyst if interest rates are low. I'm gonna come back to interest rates in a minute, but recessions going back uh, for 100 years here in Japan in the United States uh, typically serve as a catalyst. Uh, you generally generate alpha in the recession. And then if you look at it uh, over a period of time, five years after the recession, your cumulative outperformance is significant. Uh, by the way, Japan looks better than the United States for a naive value strategy in terms of generating alpha. I will point out that's primarily due to, to the fact that there are two big dislocations in this history in Japan, that one in the 1980s and then the dot-com. Whereas in the US, the, as you all probably recall, the biggest dislocation of valuation prior to this one was dot-com and that dislocation uh, was, was only one uh, you know, of these monster dislocations that created the alpha opportunity in the United States. So think of Japan as having two big dislocations in this history and the United States only having one. Now, what are we going to do with today's uh, dislocation? We would say one should expect that the, the end of the recession creates the change. What's the change? The change is that instead of negative earnings revisions and negative momentum in earnings, the earnings turn to positive momentum and you get year over year earnings growth that appears very attractive uh, even in cyclicals or the hated stocks of the recession. And we're seeing that already today. I think many of you know the revisions uh, in the third quarter uh, ending September 30 uh, were significant and there's a lot of cyclical uh, outperformance. But typically recessions are catalyst for turn and a rotation in value. That's point number one, recessions are associated with these terms. 
Second one is interest rates. Uh, we know uh, if we think about the big run, uh, a big anti-value run here for the last 10 years, that part of that is, is the mathematical effect of discounting growth at a lower discount rate. It's just a mathematical effect. Uh, multiples, you could think of as the, the, the inverse of an earnings yield. And the lower bond rates go, the lower interest rates go, the higher the multiple you would pay for any cash flow stream, including an equity stream. That matters to value spreads, and it makes some mathematical sense. This is this decline in interest rates for the last 40 years is a global phenomenon. Now, what you see is while interest rates are rising, look back in the 1970s, while interest rates are rising, the spread typically was going getting lower. It's just the mathematical effect, right? So, and then you see as interest rates decline, the multiple effect tends to favor the growth and, and disfavor the decline. But generally, the mathematical effect should be going the same way, meaning all multiples are going up while interest rates are declining, and all multiples should be going down when interest rates are rising. Interestingly, just since the end of 2016, what you see is interest rates dropping dramatically, the valuations of growth trending up, but the multiples paid for, quote, the cheapest quintile, or you could call it deep value, actually going down. So going the opposite direction. Uh, I'm going to talk about you know, the, the, the extension of that mathematical effect, but I just want to leave it there and say what's odd about you know, recent years is that we have the multiples going down for certain sectors and industries and companies while the multiples are rocketing up. And COVID accentuated that effect and drove that effect to even uh, wider levels. So, so what we say here is interest rates declining certainly has been the enemy of value and the friend of growth, but just the ending of that headwind probably creates a major catalyst in favor of value. Uh, now, we can debate, can interest rates go negative? They have in places in Europe, they are certainly negative in Japan, uh, but the question is, can they go a lot more negative? And, 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 and you know, we would say, kind of obviously, no. You can't have the same downdraft in interest rates going forward as you've had in the last 10 years, okay? So we think interest rates not going down anymore is a major catalyst for an inflection here. Um, next point is growth expectations. We think growth expectations are going to switch. Uh, now, let me ex explain what I mean by that. Really, the stock market is always discounting earnings in some way and thinking about future earnings power. And what we want to point out here is at the end of, of last year, 2019, we would have said, wow, we've really paid up for growth and really discounted value just in general. And here all we've done globally is separated into growth and value. So because half the world Half the stocks in the world is being growth, half the stocks being value, just by a characterization by MSCI. So actually, it wasn't a dividend or an earnings growth difference that drove the extreme move in the market. It was basically multiple. So if you look at the total return up to December 31st last year, you would have seen that the total return for the value index globally was only 30% total return for for, for growth was 61. So 30 percentage point difference between these two categories. What drove that? Not dividend, dividend returns, you know, were actually favored value. Wasn't even EPS growth, interestingly. Uh, if you looked at the prior 
uh, EPS growth, they were about the same. It, what happened was the multiple was contracting for value while the multiple for growth was expanding. This is before COVID. Now, what happened in COVID logically is cyclicals embedded in the value index, they robbed all the future earnings growth of the prior few years. And so you ended up with no earnings growth, minus two actually, for the value index. And you had 13% growth in the earnings uh, over that period of time for growth companies. Now, let's, let's stand back and think about that for a second. Clearly the growth, cumulative growth went from 25 to 13. So the growth index still had earnings impairment from COVID. Earnings for the growth index didn't go up. They also got hit because second quarter, as you all know, is one of the worst recession quarters globally we'll ever experience in our lifetimes. But what's interesting is look at what happened to the multiple. The multiple now was flat for, for uh, the value index, but the multiple for growth surged even though earnings did not for, for the whole growth cadre of companies, it surged to 60%. So now as of the end of September, the difference in the total return was a whopping 80 percentage points, 8,000 basis points between half the market called growth and half the market called value. And if you think about a concentrated portfolio value, and this is true of our 25 year history, when the growth index is doing well and the value index is doing poorly, and of course our stocks generally are in the value uh, portion of the market, it's even more extreme than that. Uh, we, don't, we didn't come up with the term calling ourselves deep value. I think that was attached to us. We think of ourselves as disciplined value, but then we're more extreme than the value index, both on, you know, on both sides of this phenomenon. So I just wanted to, to point it out to everyone. So we believe that growth expectations are gonna inflect again, because coming out of recessions, the growth for the value index might be higher than the growth index, meaning cyclicals have tremendous earnings growth in you know, typically between 10 and 20% for a couple of years of, of earnings growth. Uh, and and that, that generally uh, impacts multiples. So, so with that, I think I'll move on to the, the, to the final point which is we think that the disruption theses and the pro-growth theses will be uh, proven wrong. So I'm gonna talk just one simple example. Uh, we all know one of the best performing stocks in the world this year has been Tesla. And, and I, I'm not telling people on the short Tesla. Uh, we don't actually short uh, flyers like that. Uh, we, we just invest in the stocks that are on the opposite side of that, which is their valuation is, is, is too low. So I'm just gonna compare Volkswagen with uh, Tesla and just say what's going on. Now, clearly we're in an inflection in the automobile industry globally. Again, global phenomenon, basically led by Europe and China where we are going to end up driving for transportation electric vehicles in order to help with the global warming uh, issue. Uh, so, the reality is that EV is the future and we as value investors can't just look backwards and say this isn't happening. We have to analyze, okay, what does the future look like irrespective of what the past looked like. But here I wanna do some comparisons between where Volkswagen is and where Tesla is and where they will be uh, in the future. So I wanted to point out a couple of things. First of all, Tesla we know is an early mover in electric vehicles, but basically during a period of time where electric vehicles made no money. Uh, now with new environmental regulation, 
and the moves, particularly in Europe, I think it'll end up in, in the United States as well, with the regulatory moves, we will be selling many EVs over the next five years. So Volkswagen decided to get on that plan uh, a while back, partly because of the diesel gate. But, but what you see is that the EV investment is now in excess of $20 billion cumulatively for Volkswagen relative to about $23 billion for Tesla so far uh, in, in electric vehicles. The number of dedicated EV plants today, actually, the nod is actually in Volkswagen. Uh, so they have uh, one more plant than Tesla does at, at this point. Uh, and the number of models today is, is five for, for, for VW and, and four for, for Tesla. But what's most interesting is the plan. By 2025, our estimates, it's a little clear to, to, a little bit unclear to get Volkswagen to actually nail it down exactly, but it'll be in the neighborhood of 40 EV models. Why, why so many EV models? Because they can transport electric vehicle drivetrain to many different models, Audi models, Porsche models, uh, VW models, et cetera. So they are able to port an EV drivetrain to uh, a new vehicle. So, so they'll have 40 models. Our estimate of Tesla will be eight. And then the production as a consequence of models uh, in 2021 will be around 750,000, about the same amount of EV uh, production. But by 2025, Volkswagen, because they have so many more models, will be selling more EVs off of, uh, off of the platform than, than, than Tesla will. Interestingly, you look at any valuation metric, we all know that, that Volkswagen is cheap uh, relative to Tesla, but it's more dramatic than you might think. On 2021 free cash flow, uh, you know, clearly Volkswagen has, has a lot, over 12 billion of free cash flow, while Tesla, having turned free cash flow positive, is at 2.7. Forward PE six for Volkswagen and forward for Tesla 156. Now, if you compared what you're paying for the whole business to just the EV investment, enterprise value, buying the entire enterprise value, debt plus equity, what you're paying for Volkswagen is four times the EV investment that, that is embedded in the company. Whereas at Tesla, you're paying 24 times that EV investment. Uh, I know this is kind of a book value concept, but just to compare how dramatic that is just on EV. So that, that analysis doesn't include any of the legacy vehicles for Volkswagen, which generate around $15 billion of free cash flow. This is just looking at, if you bought the stock today, what would you be paying for EV? And then on, on Tesla, we're ignoring autonomous and battery and all those other stories. I acknowledge that right off. I just wanted to show how little you're paying for Volkswagen, even if you were only buying the EV. But we would call that the Tesla inside of, of Volkswagen. So um, with that, we're just saying disruption uh, is not what it's cracked up to be. We're in a period of op optimism for certain businesses that probably can't uh, work out uh, from a valuation standpoint. We're not saying it, it, it's a disaster to buy a growth company today it's just that your expected return is now mid-single digit, even for the best growth companies, uh, which we would include saying Microsoft or Google, something like that. Whereas your expected return in deep value is now you know, well into double digits, uh, just thinking about uh, you know, the future earnings power uh, of these companies. So, so with that, I'm gonna throw it back to you, Adrian, 
and, and again, the drivers of the big rotation, recession, recession ends. Secondly, interest rates probably don't go lower. And if they turned up, it'd be fantastic. Third, you know, we do believe that, uh, you know, the, the inflection in, in, in multiples follows earnings. So, so multiples will probably uh, change, you know, over the next several years. And last but not least, don't, don't count out the incumbents uh, in this world of disruption. Companies scramble to be winners into the future. John, that's excellent. Thank you very much. Um, the difference between now and the 2000 bubble is that tech stocks today have real businesses and are making a great deal of money and continue to grow their earnings, whereas in 2000, this was not the case. Doesn't this make the case against them weaker? Um, yeah, thank you for that, Adrian. Uh, our goal, we, we even say it, is trying to, try, trying to buy good businesses at low prices, not buying businesses that are going out of business. You know, clearly we're not, not necessarily always right, but, but I do agree that there are many, because this world has cheap capital and because this world is filled with disruption now, you do have to watch out in any screening tool or naive value metric, watch out businesses that are going out of business. Obviously, the most famous of that is, is physical retail, which is being taken over by e-commerce. We don't own you know, much physical retail uh, around the world because of that. I'll just point that out. On the flip side, what are you paying for this growth and for these good companies is really the riddle today. Uh, I pointed out earlier, we have owned Microsoft in the past when it was cheap. Uh, Microsoft has gone up by a factor of four times since uh, we sold it, multiple of four. Now, why did it go up four times? Earnings growth has been around what we expected, eight to 10% per year for, for Microsoft. What's happened is we've capitalized that growth. So now, even if it does grow eight to 10%, you're stuck with a five to 6% return in the stock. So it's really about the multiple that has expanded for these companies that we think is the danger point, not their long-term economic success. That is different than dot-com. Uh, we paid up for businesses that had no economic success in dot-com. And I agree with the point that the collapse, the coming collapse of growth will not look like the collapse of dot-com back then unless interest rates rise. Then, then you could see a collapse of that order of magnitude. But if interest rates stay where they are, I would not expect a collapse like we had back then. The inverse of that is the rise of the valuation for, for, for uh, deep value. As I say, I don't expect anyone to ever put the multiple on Volkswagen that they put on Tesla. What I expect is that if you look at the free cash flow return on your investment being double digit, right? That ultimately people will pay up for the carry, think of a bond concept, the carry of the return of these downtrodden stocks. And if you're investing for the long-term, the carry of the cash flow will ultimately matter uh, even if interest rates don't, don't change. Uh, the embedded carry in our global portfolios is in double digits, which is pretty cool. I'll say. Okay, on that, is this rotation sustainable? Yeah, um, when you have a gap between uh, the entire value index and the entire growth index over a few year period, that is 80%, 8,000 basis points, okay? I, what I'll tell you is what happened in, uh, 
November, where we outperformed uh, broader indices by, depending on the strategy, in the neighborhood of 10 percentage points, is you think, okay, well, it's over, right? You, 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 you kick butt in November and, and it must be over. What I point out to people is just in the last three years, this is an 8,000 basis point move between one broad index growth and another broad index value. And if you think about concentrated value, we had multiple stocks that by the end of March, you know, the deepest point of this COVID recession, that were most of our stocks were down by more than 50% from the two year highs. 50%. Like in dot com, uh, we got 60% behind the market in a two year period. Uh, and in 18 months, made it up. Even I couldn't believe it, to be honest. Uh, what it is, is you have to do the math of how extreme this environment is in order to realize these initial moves in a value rotation are tiny in the grand scheme of things. Now, again, you know, the, 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 I know big questions are out there. Will interest rates ever start rising? Will there ever be any inflation? There are macro reasons why you could think a 6% return on Microsoft is a good return. There are macro reasons for that. I just want to point out that you should like an 11% return more than a six. That's it. Okay, looking at that topic, another one here. How does value fare versus quality growth low vol when, if the Fed central banks reverse QE? Ooh, good question. Uh, um, there was another period in the United States um, where you had rising spreads, nothing to do with tech, but more around what I call quality stable growth, nifty 50 type thinking. There was a period of time where spreads for the most loved in the 60s and 70s, where the spreads for the most loved versus the hated were widening out as you were paying less for the, for the hated stocks, similar to today. And so what I'll tell you is whether it's quality growth and low vol or tech disruption, what kills the leaders, you know, the trillion dollar plus now valuations, isn't that they stumble. Because back then in Nifty 50, I wouldn't call those companies as stumbling a lot. It's just the fact that you realize you now have an embedded low return. And it's that correction along with rising interest rates that really hammered uh, the high val value companies back there in the 1970s and, and, and really powered value above. I mean, the, the multiple you're paying for value declined as interest rates went up. That's just a mathematical effect. But look at how much the valuation came down for the growers while interest rates were rising. Um, and those were stable growth. My point is, back then, that wasn't Google. That was nifty 50, steady, low vol, right? Steady low vol is probably hurt. Bond prices are probably hurt more by rising interest rates than anything, because that was your case. I'm happy owning uh, ticket. I'm happy owning, uh, which we've owned in the past, happy owning Nestle because everyone's always going to eat chocolate. You know, that kind of, you know, I'm happy to collect a 7% coupon on my ownership in, in Nestle because it's always 7%. Well, today it's four. That's the problem. Okay. Uh, in a world that seems to focus more and more on short term results, can you talk about the conversations you are having with clients right now about the underperformance and the need to be patient? Yeah. Um, what are you saying wow. to clients, John? 
I've been I've been saying this for for a long time, well, really since we started the firm, that the forces at the investment committee level, even in wealth management, with 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 say a, a an individual client in high net worth, uh, or a pension board, or any decision making body, that it's unfortunate that we measure performance. Uh, on short term, you know, how did we do this week? How do we do this day? CNBC is always flashing in front of your face. And we think of risk as monthly volatility of returns, even daily volatility of returns. That's a dysfunction, right? Because there's nothing about these businesses that can change overnight. They have long-term plans to win. So one has to elongate one's perspective. What I'm pleased by, and it's almost a miracle, Adrian, I, I will say to you, is when you looked at our AUM, uh, which we just recently disclosed, being over $40 billion, we've had four years of net inflows during our worst performance period you know, in, in our history. That gives me hope. It means that a number of clients are seeing that if you play the long game, uh, deep value adds value, and we at Pazina add value, real alpha, is just that during short-term periods, it looks crazy. Uh, I will point out, that you know, when you look at the valuation of the most val highly valued, which then drives the index, it's just that because those high, the high market caps drive the market, and then you measure value against it and call that tracking error, right? It, it's, it's odd to me if you really are trying to look out over the longer term, I would say our valuations move less than the market valuations move. Um, what worries you most that the catalyst for the rotation to value you've identified don't pan out and growth continues to outperform? Okay. Um, on the recession, pretty confident the recession is going to end because it's already ending. That one, I think, is the, is the easiest one. Okay. I, I've always said COVID was going to end. We didn't know how, but uh, COVID would end. So that's the easiest one. Interest rates, jump ball. We're not interest rate. We're not macro people. That's why we don't want to position this as interest rates are going up, and that's why you should buy deep value. We just want you to realize that if interest rates stay where they are, the carry of a deep value portfolio is attractive. In terms of companies winning or losing versus competitors, the whole disruption angle, that's the tricky part. That's where we spend all our time, to be honest. We're not always right, but the skew, the valuations we get in is what's in our favor. So. What am I saying? We're right 60% of the time, those are doubles. We're not right you know, 40% of the time, and hopefully we don't lose a lot of money. We spend a lot of time uh, on, on downside. It's the skew of the outcomes, Adrian. We're not always right. It's the skew of the outcomes that drives the long-term alpha. Uh, which of these four factors are applicable to emerging markets? Yeah, good, good question. Uh, as you know, I mean, I, I worked in emerging markets working, you know, mainly in China and in Asia back in the 1980s. Uh, what I would say is they all apply um, to emerging markets. The extreme of the phenomenon, loved versus unloved gap. I was showing you gaps that are half the market, which is growth, half the market, which is value. The most extreme gaps are between the most cyclical businesses, think industrials, right? Think consumer discretionary, think financials, right? And that is most extreme in the United States and China, where you have the most extreme on the other end, right? 
the, the winning fangs, the, uh, the Alibabas in China, Tencent, Meituan, right? So, so that extreme is there in emerging markets, mainly because of China and in the United States. Europe, a little less extreme because there's no winners, right? Quick, name the global winning companies from Indonesia, right? Like, so, so what I'll say is, is emerging markets is a little bit less powerful in this gap than the United States or China, emerging markets ex-China. So what you see in our portfolio today is a little underweight in China, not under, not a little, but you know, some material underweight in China, partly because we can't own any of those high flyers. But the opportunity to buy value in emerging markets and the impact of November, similar actually, right? Value is, is trounced in emerging markets overall. And the IRL performance was big in November in EM, just like it was in Europe. So, so I would say EM and Europe are cheaper than the United States materially. Uh, Japan is similar, they have SoftBank, but, but again, they're, they're mostly lower valuation market. Uh, so I would say value opportunity uh, does exist in all regions of the world. The reality is it's a global phenomenon. So I think you could pick your region and win in, in deep value from the starting point. Uh, I would say EM uh, is cheaper overall than, than the developed world, just as its juncture, right? Usually, usually that happens because people think EM is, is a derivative of the global world and a strong dollar is bad for you, you know, all that stuff that you hear uh, in, the, in the macro trading. Uh, but I think it's all bunk. I think emerging markets are going to have good growth over the next, uh, you know, 10 year period. Okay, I think we've should run out of time and we should probably wrap up there. John, I'd hope to get one or two more in. Uh, John, thank you very much. I thoroughly enjoyed this. I'm sure everyone else has. As you know, I do miss going out with you guys and seeing our clients and prospective clients more than anything. But hopefully this time next, well, this time in a few months, we'll be able to do that, maybe. Um, so thank you. Uh, and everyone else out there, uh, all of our guests, thank you very much for joining us. I wish you and your families uh, very well for the festive season. Thanks very much. Take care. Bye now.